0: Welcome to Moving the Needle, a podcast of the American Association of Nurse Anesthesiology. I'm your host, Dr. Dina Volacci, President of the ANA, and thanks for tuning in. It is my pleasure to welcome Robert Saunders, who is the Vice President of Practice Management at Change Health. Change Healthcare is a leading healthcare technology company that provides data and analytic-driven solutions to improve clinical, financial, administrative, and patient engagement outcomes in the United States. Welcome to the podcast, Rob. Tell us more about yourself and your organization.
1: Thanks, Tina. My name is Rob Saunders. I'm based in Columbus, Ohio. I've been working with hospital-based providers since 1989 and then started working with anesthesia entities in 1992. Uh, started working in anesthesia, running several billing offices in the Midwest and also doing a higher level up management consulting work. And then in 2000, we formed our own consulting division for those who didn't want to uh, necessarily work in the billing offices any longer. So we work nationally doing consulting work on behalf of uh, anesthesia providers and other hospital-based groups. And Change Healthcare obviously does billing and management uh, services on behalf of numerous anesthesia groups all over the country. So uh, that's kind of the, the general background for myself and the company.
0: Well, thank you for that. That's wonderful. So let's start off with the first question I have for you. Can you tell us a bit about how contracts are commonly structured between hospitals and anesthesia groups? And maybe give us some examples.
1: Typically, whether it's a hospital or an ASC or say a GI center, in in most instances, not always, but in most instances, there is what's called a a, a PSA or or exclusive service agreement between the anesthesia entity and the facility. Say an anesthesia entity is bidding on a new site uh, via the RFP process, and you know, they are awarded the contract. What uh, then? The next step typically is there'll be an agreement that is either proposed by the facility, or if they would rather have the anesthesia entity develop one, we'll help the uh, our client with a draft template uh, of an anesthesia service contract and present that to the uh, facility, and then. Both sides will go through their various spread line exercises and uh, hopefully reach a a final version um, after two or three rounds of negotiations.
0: Thank you. What's the negotiation process like and what should be our checklist covering all our bases every step of the way?
1: So this is probably going to be the meat of this discussion. And so just for background purposes, just through my 33-year plus tenure, probably close to 75 to 100 facility agreements over our career. And we're not we're not attorneys but um, I think we have enough experience that we can get these agreements to the point where they're operational, they're ready to go and just need uh, the group's counsel to finalize the agreement, just do a checkover and make sure it's consistent with state law. But from my experience, here are the key provisions in my mind as far as what anesthesia entity should be cognizant of when they're reviewing a draft agreement. And it's also important to know to not only review what's in the agreement, but perhaps what's not in the agreement that should be added. Uh, to help protect the anesthesia entity. So for example, is the contract expressly mentioned exclusivity? And usually it does, but just be careful, uh, ensure that it does. Um, there may be language in these agreements where there may be exceptions to exclusivity. For, say for example, there's a massive departure of uh, anesthesia providers and you can no longer fill the uh, staffing requirements. Then there may be language that says, well, in those instances, if you can't reach a cure within a certain number of days, then the, the entity, the facility can use an entity until the group is able to stabilize their staffing and fulfill the staffing requirements of the exclusive service arrangement. So exclusivity. Are the anesthesia providers allowed to work elsewhere? Often, and I think it's imprudent to for groups to accept this provision, but a lot of times these facilities don't want your anesthesia providers to work at other facilities because you're like enabling a competitor. But from my perspective, I think from a financial and a stability standpoint, groups should be allowed to work wherever they want. I don't think you're doing anybody any harm. The hospitals will utilize some kind of, you know, you're enabling your competitor, but you know, they're going to use somebody and it's like diversifying your portfolio. You don't have all your stocks and bonds in one company. You have it spread out, hopefully. So this is kind of a way of diversifying your portfolio in the clinical uh, setting. So that's, that's usually a non-competition provision. There may be non-competes um, that may be reasonable, like two or five miles, but I wouldn't uh, agree to um, any type of limitation on where a group can pro- uh, provide services. So that's uh, the second thing. The third thing is the first right of refusal. So, say you work at a hospital and the group works at a hospital and the hospital is contemplating building an ASC or assuming an ASC or an endo center. The anesthesia entity should insist that they have the first right of refusal to staff that new facility. And if they can't, they should notify the hospital. But I think that's kind of, uh, that's not kind of important. It is important. So, first right of refusal. Here's the big one. <laughs> term and termination. And this, this uh, really cracks me up. Just recently, I worked with a group out in California and their the initial term was two or three years. And I'm like, oh, great. We got a two or three year contract. I said, actually, you don't you need to look at the termination without cost provision. It says 90 days at any time. So basically, you just signed a three month contract. So what we do instead, and usually is well received by the facility is we recommend that, say, it's initial term of three years, hypothetically, that the agreement can only be terminated, for example, during that initial term after the first year and then with 180 days notice. So at least it gives you 180 days of stability and a guarantee to work at that facility. Otherwise, you could staff up, you could hire all these people and incur all these staffing costs and be thrown out of the hospital in 90 to uh, 120 days. So Term and termination is almost one of the first things that we review when we're reviewing these types of agreements. Indemnification. Not an expert in indemnification clauses. And this is the one area that I typically have the attorney's review, but you certainly want to make sure it's mutual. But beyond that, um, that's the one area I don't feel entirely comfortable uh, commenting on. One of the other major provisions is non solicitation. And what that means is, and often we see one sided provisions offered by the facility in their first draft. And what that says, for them is that during the term of the agreement and perhaps for one or two years post-termination, their group, the anesthesia entity cannot solicit a hospital employee to become under the employee of the anesthesia entity. I'm not sure what, what scenario that would <laughs> unfold in, but that's highly unlikely. And it stops short of making that mutual. And it's very important because of what we've witnessed over the years whereby hospitals or facilities will basically try to pick off your employees and either have them join a successor company or become employees of the facility or perhaps form a new group. So it's absolutely vital to have this protection where the facility is disallowed during the term of the agreement and one or two years post-term from interfering with the employment relationship uh, between your employees and, and the group. However, if the hospital is insistent on perhaps employing your providers, then only with the group's permission should you allow them. And then also, in my opinion, and we've seen this in certain agreements, they should pay for any recruiting costs they've incurred in the last, say, six months hiring new employees. Otherwise, you just become a staffing company. So have perhaps language baked into that agreement whereby they have to reimburse you for any recruiting costs incurred in the last six months. So- Non-solicitation is very important. So term and termination, non-solicitation so far are the key provisions. Another uh, key uh, provision in these agreements is the confidentiality. Again, make sure that it's mutual. You do not want the facility to take your information, your data, your whatever, anything about the group, and use that to develop an RFP, a request for proposal that could be used against you. So make sure that your group's information, confidential information is protected in this agreement and it's mutual. So you keep their information uh, confidential, they keep your information confidential. Very important. Moving on as far as some of the key provisions, it's become less of importance these days, but um, the old, oh, you have to participate with all the payers that we participate with. Well, you really can't go out and network with payers anymore because of not only the state balanced billing laws, but now the No Surprise Act, um, which are very well versed in. And as you well know, um, in certain states, if you do have a state balanced billing law, you could actually have two balanced billing laws. One for fully insured, which is what the state laws typically cover, and one for the self-insured, which is what the NSA was enacted to uh, fill in those gaps. But if there is not a state balanced billing law then the NSA or the No Surprise Act yeah, basically is the dominant um, balanced billing law in that state. So the whole, oh, you can't go out of network or you can't be non-par with a certain pair, that whole argument is pretty much moot at this point. However, there also is usually language in that section regarding bundled payment arrangements. And bundled payment arrangements, if I remember correctly, have been around for since the early 90s. I know that in certain markets was trying to bundle heart cases to get cabbages. Um, And now I think it's more prevalent maybe for total hips and total knees, for example. And you just want to make sure that you're not dictated the price of your piece of the bundle. It's, uh, it's negotiated. And what we recommend there is you say payer X is going to bundle total hips, for example, then you should look at, uh, you should review your, um, collection history for that payer, for for those CPT codes, and that should be your starting point when negotiating your piece of the pie for a bundle payment arrangement. So, payer participation and bundle payment arrangements are interesting and key provisions, but again, I think that the emphasis now should be on the bundle payment arrangements for the reasons I just mentioned. Insurance requirements, um, there's typically a section regarding what insurance requirements, um, professional liability, workers' comp, general liability provisions and coverages the group should have. Make sure you have those coverages, whether they're reasonable. If the facility is requesting limits that are higher than what you currently have, maybe shop those, uh, evaluate what those additional costs would be for that additional coverage. And if it's too expensive, maybe push back on a facility. Say, so, well, we typically have 1, 1 million, 3 million. Uh, you're asking for 3 million, 6 million. That's a little bit excessive. If, if it's too costs so prohibitive, perhaps try to negotiate those limits downward to be consistent with industry standards. This is actually the next one's pretty important. The process for removing a provider from the schedule. You don't want <laughs> you don't want to have a hospital have a the unilateral ability to zap somebody Um, off the schedule just because they're having a bad day, for example, or the provider's having a bad day. You want to have a due process where the complaints uh, by the facility, if there is one, is in writing, delivered timely to the group. If the facility believes that the uh, infraction, the supposed infraction is serious enough, they should be allowed perhaps to remove uh, the provider temporarily from the schedule. And then there should be conversation with the, the head of the group and the facility CEO and perhaps the CMO and the chief of staff to uh, discuss the situation and see if there's a, a remedy that can be developed um, to keep the uh, provider or re- reinstate the provider to the schedule if necessary. So again, it's very important process for removing a provider. I always like to see provisions in these agreements where there's almost mandatory quarterly or even more frequent operational meetings between the facility and the anesthesia entity so that you can get a sense of how well you're doing. The groups that we see that get in trouble, that is they get the departments put out the bid unbeknownst to them, they've lost contact with administration. And as you all well know, administrators change quite frequently. You might have a good relationship with administrator A, but they may retire, and then you've got a replacement who doesn't really care about your group or the history, and they want to make a name for themselves. They put your department out the bid, and you're like, oh, my God, what happened? So very important to have quarterly meetings. See how you're doing. See if there's any feedback, anything you can do to help the facility with the service levels, efficiency, effectiveness, uh, quality and maybe perhaps expand their uh, service lines as far as the anesthesia service offerings are considered. I think it's always good to actually include that in the agreement so it forces both sides to contractually be obligated to meet perhaps quarterly or every six months. Billing data support. Uh, <laughs> uh, the big one. The big one. Well, <laughs> This is big for us because of, you know, we're, we're a big national billing company and, and we like to, the more manual processes, the higher the costs of, uh, and the, the, the efficiencies are lost in trying to get billing data from the hospital. Um, so any, any electronic interfaces, demographic and maybe charge interfaces, including having access to some of the key um, documents associated with anesthesia services, like the anesthesia record, the op reports, the procedure notes. The surgical record, HP, you know, the daily operating room schedule is very important because you want to make sure from a charge capture standpoint that you make sure you have the documentation for every case that happened that day, uh, including add-on cases. And conversely, if there was a canceled case, you'd want to know that. So you're not looking for documentation for a case that was canceled. And then the same perhaps for uh, OB logs. You know, there might be a surgical log, an OB log. And then there might be some kind of charge ticket for post-op pain rounds. So you want to make sure that all that documentation is available electronically, if possible, and you have the ability to access the hospital information system. Make sure that you can get any updated uh, reports or demographic information, because if you, as you well know, the demographics from the hospital are often uh, insufficient, causing delays in. name to the right payer. And then of course you you could bump up against timely filing deadlines. And if you miss those then you might have to write off the account. So all of this is very important in the grand scheme of making sure that the billing collection processes are as efficient and effective as possible. And then we get down to, and this is actually very fresh for me. I'm working on uh, several anesthesia subsidy evaluations right now. And, I'm going to maybe just highlight how in our view, in our view, how these negotiations typically work. Of course, there's all these variables, but we do have a lot of experience negotiating or helping groups negotiate their level of financial support. It's, it's interesting. Um, this was a real hot area for us, starting in the late 2000s and then for for several years. and then the tide seemed to turn where hospitals were their main goal was to crank down the level of financial support. So a lot of times groups are just trying to hold on to what they had as far as that level of financial support. And if groups didn't go along, well, all of a sudden they had the departments um, put out the bid and then you had the, you know, the big um, staffing companies, the envisions, the team house and all these other um, national staffing companies, you know, come in uh, and often submit low ball bids, knowing that in six months from now, they were going to be upside down financially and they're going to have their hands out for additional financial support. But in the meantime, the administrator gets his big bonus because he made, you know, had to incurred a bunch of cost savings and then he or she leaves. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, so now with the, in my view, with the no surprise act, those staffing companies, I mean, I think that was part of their business model balance billing patients. And given that inability now, I, it's going to be interesting if, how those staffing companies will fare you know, under the, uh, this new environment. So why does that matter? It, now it seems like um, that has emboldened our anesthesia entities, knowing that maybe some of their potential competitors are weakened um, and are going back to the hospitals and saying, listen, we need more financial support or we're going to go work in the ASC. We don't have to take call. We don't have to work nights. We don't have to work weekends and we can make almost the same amount of money. And so the volume of work in that arena really seems to have picked up in the last couple of years, at least for us. So it's interesting how that pendulum has kind of swung back in favor of of, uh, our providers. Just very quickly, when we do subsidy, perform health groups, perform uh, substitute uh, evaluations, just think of it as an income statement. So the top level would be revenue. What drives revenue? Well, coding and documentation performance, making sure you're uh, documenting to maximize the the revenue, the potential revenue for the case, and making sure your coding is, is accurate. Payer contracting performance. Has your group kept up? Do they constantly renegotiate contracts with their payers? Are their rates uh, consistent with regional local levels? The groups that get in trouble are the ones who, when I say get in trouble, that uh, they're are the ones who perhaps don't negotiate, they neglect their contracts for 10, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And all of a sudden, um, they're asking the hospital, basically to support a group that has very unfavorable terms of reimbursement. So anything you can do to maximize your revenue, including increasing your uh, payer rates is very important. And to demonstrate to the hospital that you've actively tried to uh, increase those rates every year for the past X number of years. So, and then of course, billing performance. The hospital should not be required to subsidize a poor billing and collection company or if they do it, if a group does it in-house, their own billing solution. Why should a hospital, and you should demonstrate to the hospital that um, you've evaluated your own billing and collection company so that the hospital feels confident that they're not subsidizing a poor billing company's performance. That's the revenue. And then what's the main driver Of course, on the expense side, well, it's the personnel. And that's when you get into the staffing grid. And uh, that's usually, for me, the hardest part is, is trying to understand how the group actually staffs the various anesthetizing locations. You look at the day schedule, how many rooms are typically running, and are those same number of rooms running every day? How about other anesthetizing locations? How do you cover interventional radiology or endo? And how do you cover OB? And is OB 24 uh, 7 on site or is it beeper call? And then, if you're on first call, how often do you have to come back during the night to staff those rooms? And all that should be baked into the staffing grid. And then, of course, weekend uh, requirements, weekend call requirements, or schedule cases. Are there scheduled cases on the weekends? And that drives the number of hours. And then we typically divide that, those number of hours by the average number of hours that um, the anesthesia provider um, works per week. And then you bake in some um, paid time off. You know, typically it's six, seven, eight weeks for a a CRNA, for example. And then you you should consider whether the the CRNA gets the post uh, call day off. So that all drives the number of bodies. That's the main driver of the cost side in these subsidy evaluations. And then the only other component on the expense side is the uh, overhead, which is mainly billing and management, counting fees, legal fees, uh, credit card fees, et cetera, et cetera. And those are uh, relatively minor, but uh, important to make sure that's comprehensive as part of the uh, the equation to drive the, the subsidy request. And the thing is, if, if, if you're not going to be able to If the level of financial support is not going to be sufficient to allow your group to retain and recruit new CRNAs, then it's not a a solid business model. So you might have to walk away in those scenarios. But usually when you make a compelling case to um, administration, and it's a fact-driven, comprehensive report, it usually goes over pretty well. So the important thing, the groups that get in trouble or they just, you know, hand, hand the hospital or the facility a napkin with, you know, all we need an extra million dollars. Okay. And they don't have a, they don't have a report. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, well, we're going to put your department out the bid. So it usually goes over well when you develop a comprehensive report. And then the last piece of an agreement could be the inclusion of performance metrics. That is having, so say you have a million dollar subsidy and say, well, Let's put 10% of that at risk, but it maybe works both ways. So the subsidy could be decreased by $100,000, or you could actually get $1.1 million if you exceed all the thresholds for the various performance metrics. For example, the wrong site or the wrong side procedure is being done for regional anesthesia. Antibiotic in administration, reintubation in the PACU, uh, pre op notes, are they documented timely and comprehensively? And the same for the post anesthesia discharge notes. And then, so you would have, you know, say, four or five efficiency and, and quality metrics, or maybe a combination. And then it's on start time, the first case of the day starting on time, uh, the number, the percentage of cases that started on time. They should all be controllable and be more objective than and not subjective, like patient satisfaction or surgeon satisfaction. You know, you all know that. You know, if a surgeon a practitioner is having a bad day, then that probably not going to give you the best score, and it, it, that's a more subjective and uncontrollable measure. And uh, in my opinion, should be excluded from the list of performance metrics. But just imagine you have four or five metrics, and you have various thresholds. Ninety-five percent, and then ninety-two percent, and then ninety percent, and your payout, whether it's quarterly, annual, -annual, semi-annual, depends on whether you meet uh, those various thresholds. So you could get zero percent if you hit uh, if you didn't hit, say, the ninety-two percent. You get fifty percent of the payout for that metric if you hit the ninety-five percent, and then you get the full hundred percent. If you hit the say 97 percent, and then if you exceed the 90 percent, maybe you get you know 110 percent of uh, the payout for that performance metric. So anyway, all the metrics should be, in my opinion, objective. Uh, they should be measurable. Who's going to measure? Is there going to be a chance to dispute? The hospitals say that they're the ones recording it, providing results. Do you have a chance to dispute the findings? et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, can you perhaps make up for that poor performance in subsequent quarters to have perhaps recoup the performance dollars that you missed out in prior quarters? So that, in my opinion, are the main points as far as facility agreements. Again, but just to recap, besides the the level of financial support, it would probably be, uh, one would be term and termination Two, probably non-solicitation. And maybe I think a big one for the hospital is the process for removing a provider. I think they always want to feel like they have that power to have somebody removed from the schedule if they perceive that that provider is not working efficiently or effectively or there's a behavioral issue. So those to me are the main points. And then uh, all the other points are important, but maybe secondary to the ones I just mentioned.
0: First of all, thank you so much for all the information, the way you brought it out, because I, no, it's really important because I know you interface with a lot of anesthesia groups and sometimes have to walk them back through the basics. So this was a fabulous overview of hitting the high point. So I so appreciate that. Let me ask you this question then. Well, yeah, definitely would like to hear about the policy stuff. So what provisions like termination without cause, confidentially and non-solicitation, should CRNAs look out for? And I know you went into that. And what could be the consequences of ignoring them? And I think that's where I really wanted to point out is, where is it that if you don't do this, where what gets them in trouble? If you could give us, walk us through a couple examples of where that got them. That would be great.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and maybe some of this will be uh, a little bit repetitive. But again, if your termination without cause provision is only 90, 120 days, that does not give you a lot of stability. And that, and that may make group members feel a little unsettled. And if you're a astute new recruit, you might want to ask for a copy of your facility agreement, because if I'm going to uproot my family and join your group, knowing that the contract could be terminated in three months or four months, that might give me pause to perhaps uh, relocate and join the practice. So, I think from a internal level of confidence and stability, it's important. And from a recruiting and retention, uh, from a uh, re- recruitment standpoint, it may become, if not already important, to demonstrate that you, yes, we have a long standing relationship with facility X. And uh, we have a new three-year agreement and, and the hospital can't terminate for the first you know, uh, year, year and a half, two years, whatever the case may be. So we're in good shape for the next several years. And I think from that perspective, it's important. Again, the groups that get in trouble are the ones who ignore. They focus on the term, but they don't for full focus on the termination uh, without cost provision, which for me is more important. So you could have a hundred-year agreement, but you can get kicked out in 90 days, who cares? Okay. Now, the non-solicitation, that's at the top of the list. I I can't tell you how many times in our career we've seen, seen this exact issue unfold, whereby the hospital does an end round and has backdoor conversations with certain providers in the group to take over the contract or join a successor group. And it does happen. This is real life. And that's why you need those protections. Otherwise, there could be a level of mistrust among the group. Um, If you don't have that provision in place, wondering, okay, who's the hospital? Why is is the hospital administrator talking to uh, CRNAX over there in the corner? Are they talking about a new contract? So from, again, level of confidence and stability and trust, I think it's important to make sure the hospital or the facility cannot... Uh, basically pick off your providers to uh, join the successor group or become employees. Um, very, very important to me. I wouldn't be bringing up these key areas if we haven't witnessed the right. adverse consequences of not having these provisions in place. Again, very important to not only review what's been presented as far as a contract but what's not included. And again, we, you know, if if any of your groups or members need a sample language, just let us know and, We've got 100 examples of sample contracts and the sample provisions um, because we use them all the time uh, to make sure they're inserted into the agreements. And most often, if not always, the hospital understands uh, our concerns and, and, and is willing to accept these uh, new provisions that we suggested.
0: Well, let me give you two questions I have. One, with the surprise billing, um, you know, I feel that it's put a lot of the power back into the insurance company's hands. So give me a kind of walk me through how can a group protect themselves or how to how what's the best way of negotiating with that? Because, you, you know, the amount of money and time it takes to get the revenue back, but then it outsets if you don't win, you're kind of like in a negative. So how can one negotiate that or work around that?
1: Yeah. And I I uh I should say I have the misfortune of, of negotiating with payers all the time. And I'm not exaggerating that I probably have worked on. 800 to 1,000 payer contracts, it's miserable work, but it's very rewarding. And I, I develop a, a monthly newsletter specific to the various hospital-based groups, a radiology one. I work with somebody else on a pathology one, and I, I develop an anesthesia newsletter. And I actually have been not warning, but uh, advising groups, regardless of the specialty. If they're out of network with a payer, if they're out of network with a payer in 2021, determine what your let's say with specific the anesthesia, what's your effective yield is per, per unit. I mean, are you effectively getting $90 per unit or $120 a unit or whatever the case may be? And then very important to compare how you if you're still out of network in 2022, with that same pair. What are you now getting paid? Because the payers, as you well know, will pay you what's called the qualifying payment amount. And then if you disagree with it, uh, you have 30 days to enter into the open negotiation period. And if that fails, then you go through the whole arbitration process, which is costly and time-consuming. So what I am seeing is that groups who elected to stay out of network are getting significant reductions in their effective yield rates. So say they were getting 90 last year effectively. When I say effectively, there's, there doesn't seem it'll be a lot of consistency when you're out of network on how you get paid. Right. After all these years, I've never really figured it out, but uh, and I've tried, but I can't. And now those rates are, say, in uh, this example, instead of 90 60 dollars a unit. And so, if it reaches a point, unless you are successful going through the open negotiation period, and then at some point, the both parties say, Well, let's just enter in an agreement, unless you do that, and in this example, your effective yield in 2022 is much lower than it was last year, then maybe it would be prudent to get in network with that payer and basically take the hit, if you will, and just go and network. So it's you're right, it's it's it has not, I mean, unfortunately, the No Surprise Act is there are bad actors on both sides. The staffing companies didn't help us because of their business model, but we're all paying for it, and definitely the, the shift in power. Has shifted back to the payers, but I am seeing so far this year, instead of getting, well, I should I should keep it more general, but say his, hypothetically last year, you get oh, $2 per year increases for three years per year. So $6 over a three-year increase. We're seeing offers of 75 cents, 50 cents a year. I mean, I've never seen those offers before. So the payers are definitely taking advantage of the No Surprise Act or referencing it in their responses. And uh, you can go try to go back and forth a few times, but there are some of the big payers who just say, take it or leave it. You know, good luck with uh, <laughs> going out of the network. So the only thing I can recommend, again, going back to a point I made previously was, I, I like multi-year agreements, three-year agreements, for example, uh, with step increases. And if you continually do that, you know, that's probably the best you can do it's it's a little bit hard to reconcile the record profits that these payers are reporting in 2021 and in the first quarter of 2022 it's hard to reconcile that but they don't care <laughs>
0: so,
1: <laughs> so it's it's uh you know it's a slugfest and then of course um, besides the unit rate you have carve outs often for ob um, the various ob codes and then um You know, maybe in certain parts of the country, I think Gary of our Keeling of our company mentioned this uh, in certain parts of the country for certain payers, you know, there's endo carve outs. And sometimes in the East Coast with certain payers, there are carve outs for the various monitoring lines and other flat fee procedures.
0: So let me ask you this, because this will be something, especially for group people that decide or want to get into the anesthesia business and get out of being a clinician, but create their own contracts. Can you give them some tips on how to negotiate the fairest possible contract? You know, what What would be the key points that you could think that you could give someone to say, here's how you get a negotiated rate? Because I hear a lot of times people just accept a rate and don't really negotiate.
1: With, with the payers or the facility? I'm sorry.
0: With the payers.
1: Sometimes when you have new entities... The pairs will say, "Well, you're a new entity. You have no claims history. Therefore, we're going to give you what's called rack rates. You know, the the off-the-rack rates, the lowest possible rates, which doesn't make a ton of sense because somebody was providing anesthesia at that facility, right? So it really, it really. uh, I mean, we work with a big uh, CRNA only entity down in based in the south, and. You know, they went through this argument with the big payer recently and the, the payer goes, OK, we understand. So we'll give you basically what we were paying the old entity before they got displaced. So that argument, I think it's important to have, I think, based on our experience. And again, I think we probably have worked with more payer negotiations than maybe any, any other entity in the, in the country. But. I think we've heard it all. I think we know what arguments work, which ones don't. The whole payer contracting is, is a whole separate discussion, but there's a lot of nuances involved with payer contracting, including timing, when you know to go in for the kill, when you need to let kind of time lapse to use that as a negotiating tool, if you will. And then, you know, the ASA has an annual survey of you know median rates, 75th percentile, probably I think other percentiles, for those states where they have sufficient data to show what the average contracted rate is for, say, the top five payers, if I remember correctly. That's always interesting to kind of get you in the ballpark. I haven't seen too many payers say, oh, okay, well, we'll give you that rate instead. They're going to give you the lowest rate possible, and then you, you just got to go back at them maybe one or two times with different business reasons. You know, we, there's no way we can recruit payers making uh, $40 a unit or $50 a unit. And, you know, they're, they're going to often say, oh, there's there's one rate for the entire, for all the providers in the state, which is usually untrue. <laughs> but they it's all about semantics. They might have a state rate, but then they have enhanced rates. It's a slugfest. Uh, but again, usually you are successful if you go one or two rounds with um, some legitimate uh, business reasons why you can't accept whatever they're proposing. I'm working with a couple of payers here in Ohio on behalf of a fairly new group of ours. And the, the offers are pretty bad. And so we're saying, instead of making a three-year agreement, let's make it a two-year agreement, hoping that maybe in two years from now the environment will change a little bit. Maybe there'll be some uh, revamps to the no surprise act. Cause I hate to lock in a group to you know, some, some pretty bad uh, increases for three years. So we're trying to limit it back down to maybe two years and then, in a year from and a half from now, we'll go through the same process again. But it, the, the risk is low given that you know they're only offering very, very minimal, like less than 1% sometimes increases year over year.
0: Let me ask you, um, after COVID, we saw a backlog in cases, anesthesia cases, because we weren't doing elective surgeries. A lot of people delayed care. So we're starting to see the ramifications of that. And we know we have a provider shortage and it's a health equity issue problem. Are the payers interested in that conversation about providing health equity and being a solution? Are they still, or is that even a discussed angle with them? Do they care? <laughs> you know, well, I mean, we don't know they, they care, but then when it comes down to when you're asking for more money or to, for instance, for CRNAs, right? CRNA only or QZ billing, we tend to struggle getting the same kind of remuneration rates as a a physician group. So my question is, does that help or would it help saying about health equity for CRNA groups to negotiate that piece that we're creating access, we're affordable, we have the safety? Would that resonate at all with these payers?
1: You and I and, and Gary and others, I think, discussed this maybe a couple of years ago as far as global strategy for trying to convince certain payers to pay the QZ rate at the same level as the AA rate. Maybe because of my lack of exposure to working with, I mean, with, with CRNA-only entities, I, I won't have a good answer for you, uh, but I do have a little bit of experience with this entity that I just mentioned based out of the South. And I think for their major payers, if not all their payers, they agree to uh, not discount the QZ rate. Let me just back up. It's very important when negotiating with certain payers to to fully understand. I mean, usually it's in their payer. They have published payer policies on anesthesia. But make sure that you understand uh, how the QZ modifier will pay. You know, in the most instances, however, the QZ rate is not discounted off the AA rate. And again, I probably, with my living experience on that scenario only, would be the, to basically convey to payers that of what you just described. Now there's c- kind of a backlog of elective cases uh, that were postponed due to COVID and that we need to fully support the CRNAs. And as you all know, I mean, CRNA compensation overall is is uh, increase, uh, fairly significantly over the years. And, uh, if you can't recruit and retain CRNAs and, uh, whether the payers care or not, I don't know. I, I, you know, they usually just take the offers back to some supposed analysts. It's like when you go buy a car and they go, oh, the guy goes, Oh, let me go talk to my manager. And he goes and talks to the vending machine.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> so, so I don't know if sometimes if the frontline person's, um, unreasonable um, and not really responding, then we'll get a more regional person. But you got to be careful because you don't want to burn that relationship if you don't have to. But again, if it's, it's not going to make sense financially for you to enter into that uh, agreement or even that facility because the rates are being offered are so low. And there's, you know, they're discounting the QZ rate uh, significantly. And they might have to just pull out and uh, you just you tell the payer, well, this isn't going to work and see how that resonates. But That's the kind of the extent of my uh, experience in that arena. So I'm sorry I can't be more helpful.
0: That was perfect. And then speaking of contracts with um, facilities, are you seeing the shift now moving more away from a medical direction model and more towards um, what I call using the CRNAs more a full scope of practice, less supervision?
1: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Maybe they're just getting caught up the market, but CRNA costs are increasing. Yeah, it's certainly prudent for groups when they can, depending on the state, to leverage CRNAs as much as they can. So if that means leveraging you know, five or six CRNAs being medically supervised by an anesthesiologist, I mean, I don't think that's, that transition is new. I think that we started seeing that maybe 10 years ago. So it makes sense. And it makes sense from perhaps a level of care and, a, um, and a, from a cost perspective.
0: So my last question, you want to talk about policy. So I'll let you take that off and uh, give us some ideas on that.
1: I go to Cape Cod. One of my favorite T-shirts that I ever bought was, it's all fun and games until the vice president shoots you in the face. And that was when, uh, referenced when Dick Cheney accidentally uh, shot his hunting partner in the face. And where that translates into group policies is, you know, it's all, we all get along and you all get along until you don't. Okay, and we have seen groups really, instead of focusing on their practice, have uh, entered into a realm of turmoil when they have either group policies that don't exist or their group policies that are not well written. They're incomplete. um, They're not up to date, um, et cetera, et cetera. You can put the effort in now and develop the policies, or you can wait till something blows up and you can spend 20 times more time on resolving uh, that issue. I mean, we've seen groups fight over certain issues, um, policies that didn't exist or they were, like I said, they were um, poorly constructed. And then they get lawyers involved. We had one group where uh, the radiologist didn't agree with his bio calculation. He took the group to jury trial. Okay. So that's kind of the extreme. But um, I, just, I just always insist that groups contemplate some of these key policies. So to start off, imagine the scenario where a CRNA uh, breaks his or her leg skiing. All right. And so, you know, they're, they're uh, a partner, a group, or a shareholder, or whatever the correct term may be. What does the group's policy, if at all, afford that, let's just call them, temporarily disabled employee? And because what happens is, if that employee can't work for, say, two months, then uh, either everybody else has to cover for that person's absence, or you have to hire perhaps very expensive local providers. right? So that's one scenario, we don't have a policy at all. And then the other scenario is you have a policy, but the payouts that are afforded to this, let's just call them disabled uh, employee, just for sake of brevity are very, very generous. And we've seen instances where somebody will be out for say six months, the group pays them full salary for those six months, employee comes back, it works five days and goes back out for another 60 days for another disability supposed disability um and guess the whole cycle of payment starts over and over again and they so the group is not only paying out this person full salary for example these this happens all the time but they also have to uh either rely on the current staff to work harder take less pto you know work more call or they have to hire very expensive local providers so A group policy regarding again extended illness or disabled employee would be what would the definition be of a disabled employee, and how does that present themselves? would Would the would the practitioner? have to get a letter from their primary care physician or whomever saying that this person can't work in this capacity for the next 60 or 90 days. So something that kind of gets the clock starting. And are there any requirements, work requirements for the uh, disabled employee to start receiving these payments? Is it based on uh, years of service? services? They have to have worked there for say 10 years with the group. And, you know, what are those payment terms? Um, and they're all over the place. hundred uh, percent for the first, you know, two weeks, and then 75% for the next two weeks. And I've seen groups actually start to scale back those level of payments to those disabled employees to try to limit their financial exposure, perhaps thinking, well, you know, they've been around for 10 years and they should have enough savings to cover themselves financially if they do have a a mishap like this, the skiing accident, the broken leg. And think about this. If you're out uh, because of an extended illness, do you accrue a vacation? Are, are, are paid time off while you're off. That's one thing that should be part of the policy. Uh, what's the group's ability to terminate disabled um, practitioner? And again, these are all, cons- you know, hopefully consistent with state disability laws, which I'm not terribly familiar with. And then say in this scenario, the, the, the person with a broken leg starts to heal. They want to come back to work. What's the mechanism for having the uh, disabled employee notify the group that they're returning? Should they receive medical clearance? Are they gonna be required to work full-time or can you allow that person to perhaps work uh, part-time until they're fully able to return to a full-time schedule? And what if they can't perform certain functions as a CRNA when they return to work? Is there a job for them? Can they do something else for the group? Or do you have to limit perhaps what functions they can perform because of their disability? And also, would this person who's returning to the group be required to perhaps make up for any missed call? So those are some of the uh, key components of returning to work in that part of the policy. And you know, again, what happens if this cycle continues. I worked with a group of radiologists a long time ago in the Midwest, and this radiologist claimed um, chronic fatigue syndrome, which we all have. So she would go out for you know 60 days uh, uh, claiming uh, CFS. The group would pay her 60 days, full salary. She'd come back and work a few days and then go back out. And then because of their policy, they just had to keep paying her over and over and over. So th- these are real life examples of why um, these policies are important. And a lot of times groups will say, okay, we'll pay you X for, you know, Y number of days, let's just say, you know, full salary the first uh, month and then 50% the next month and so on and so forth. But that cycle is on an every two year cycle. So there's a limit, there's a cap for every two years that we have to make payments pursuant to these policies for a disabled practitioner. And then I don't know if CRNA-only groups typically have, maybe you could answer this, AR buyouts or deferred compensation payments. So say you have a partnership or a shareholdership, and somebody leaves, they've, they've met all the requirements and they're going to retire and they get a cut of the AR when they leave. Can you comment on that?
0: it's kind of all over. Some groups are that advanced and others, it's just more of a, you know, they're fairly new into the business and they didn't think of all those side pieces of what about if somebody wanted to leave?
1: Yeah. So what I was going to say there vis-a-vis this discussion about the disabled employee is that some groups have policies that if they take, they say they pay out $50,000 to a disabled employee and that person retires, say 10 years from now, they'll Deduct that fifty thousand dollars from their defer comp uh, payouts. I'm not going to discuss defer. I'm, I actually wrote an article with a lawyer a few years ago on defer comp plans. It's probably a little complicated to discuss via podcast. But for anyone listening, I would encourage you to have a very comprehensive defer comp plan if you want to offer one. That's consistent with what's called Internal Revenue Code Section 409A. It was born out of the Enron mess when those guys looted their defer comp. Um, so, those that that scenario born these new regulations. I'm not sure that I've ever heard of a group being investigated by the IRS because of their FER comp plan is inconsistent with that Internal Revenue Code I mentioned, but I wouldn't want to take the risk if I were. But yeah, and I and I still see a lot of provisions and employment agreements where the fur comp section is completely inconsistent with the regulations. And right. the classic is, oh, CRNA, A, uh, she's getting um, you know $10,000 a month for 12 months. Whoa. And then CRNA B just retired. So we're going to go back and reduce CRNA A's buyouts by half, but we're going to extend it to two years. You can't do that. There's all these regulations. There has to be what's called a substantial risk of forfeiture, et cetera, et cetera. But if you ever need some, Intel or, or that, that article, just let me know on the fur comp, but that's it's a little bit complicated for a podcast. So, so the only other um, policy I wanted to mention was part-time options. And again, I don't know if CNA groups uh, typically have part-time options, but it's all for the betterment of the group. If the group doesn't want to have part-time employees or people who work less than full-time, I should say, then just don't allow it because there's certain advantages of having full-time employees only. But some of the key provisions of a part-time policy, if a group wanted to pursue that, and there's different forms. You could have part-timer who works at a uh, percentage of the full-time schedule, or you could have, they could work a full schedule, but they don't take any call responsibilities or, or it's reduced call. And then you could have uh, two uh, CRNAs jobs here. They each work 50, 50% to cover um, basically a uh, full-time CRNAs uh, schedule. And the, you know the work assignment would be at the sole discretion of, of the board. Again, it's always the betterment of the group. So real quickly, some of the uh, key provisions of a part-time policy, what is the service requirement to even be allowed to cons- be considered for part time? Do they have to be a group partner for 10 years, for example? Do they have to be 65 years old and have worked for the group for 10 years? or is there some other type of requirement to be able to qualify to, be, to work part-time? What kind of notice should a CRNA give for her group if they want to work part-time? Is it a year, six months, nine months? I mean, this all has to kind of, I think the longer, the better within reason because the group has to kind of plan, uh, replace for that um, that CRNA. But on the other hand, you know, CRNA, as we saw during the COVID, having perhaps CRNAs that worked less than a full-time schedule, they were a little bit maybe more pliable in adjusting your you know, your daily schedule during COVID. So, there are some advantages in, in that scenario. Again, notice requirement, how long should the, uh, the person requesting to go part-time have to give the group? What, how does the group decide? Is it a simple majority? Is it two-thirds? Is it unanimous? And the key thing here is you want a policy that's objective, that's not dependent on the specific person, but it's a policy that's already exists. So say you've got, I mean, this happened with my brother's group. He's a retired uh, nephrologist and, and, you know, the group liked him. He wanted to go part time for a limited period of time. And they said, Sure. But there was another guy in the same group who asked for the same thing, but he didn't get along with certain members of his group. And they said, no, no part-time. So that was the end of that person's tenure with the group. So anyway, how does the group decide on these uh, requests to go part-time? And it shouldn't be open-ended. There should be a defined period of time that initially the person can work part-time. Say it's a year. And then what happens after a year? Do they go back to full-time? Do they continue on that part-time option for, say, another year? Is it changed, or you say no? You're done uh, after one year. No more part time for you uh, after one year. And then, um, you know, what what is their status as far as say say they are a shareholder, or a partner, whatever the correct term would be for your group? Uh, do they still have voting rights, or do they no longer have voting rights? And then, as far as the compensation, so typically what we recommend to say. Just say hypothetically, your average CRNA comp of benefits is two hundred fifty thousand. Okay, two hundred grand on the comp, and we all know that comp consists of salary, bonus, shift pay, call pay, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So two hundred grand in compensation, fifty grand in benefits, total of two hundred fifty thousand. So as far as the benefits are concerned, for the part timer, say hypothetically fifty uh, percent. The part timer wants to work fifty percent. Well, the benefits may not change. They may stay at that 50,000. So the compensation becomes the plug number. So the full timer, 250. So the part timer, their total package should be 125 in this example. The benefits are fixed at 50,000, assuming they still qualify for all the benefits. So, the 125 less the 50 in benefits, the plug figure for the compensation in this scenario becomes 75,000. So, their total package is exactly one half of the 250,000. And then the last thing, as far as uh, part timers in the, the policy, is should that person be allowed to also work locums or work in, in other places, or are they, do they have to be dedicated to the group? You certainly don't want to have an employee who perhaps, you know, work the night shift somewhere else and then they come in and they're exhausted trying to work for your group on a part-time basis. So those are really the main provisions of part-time options we've worked with many groups on developing them. And every provision has an option that we, we present to groups so that they can thoroughly think through each aspect of the policy. So that's kind of the end of the discussion regarding suggested group policies.
0: Well, Rob, I just want to say it's always a pleasure talking to you. The information that you have shared, I know it's a lot, it's vast, but it's fabulous high points. And I just want to say thank you for being here for this great conversation And I think we all feel a little more prepared next time for our contract negotiations and the key points of what we need to look at with policies and stuff. So I just want to say, please join us next time for another episode of Moving the Needle. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to like and subscribe. Tell your friends, come back soon and be sure to visit ANA.com.